All right, y'all, turn to Galatians. Just go to the right. Keep going. Or you can just look in your handy bulletin and find the text right there for you on page 10. All right. The time had finally come. These ancient promises that had been promised a long, long time ago started to come alive right in the midst of this people. In other words, these ancient promises that were actually promised 400, about some 470 years ago, started coming alive right in the midst of these people. So if you can imagine, you got promises that have been announced and for 470 years, nothing's happening. You're waiting on these promises. Generation comes, rises and falls. Parents teaching their children, trust the promises. Don't see it in their day. Next generation, trust the promises. Don't see it in their day. And then finally, after 470 years, these promises start busting through the ground like an oak tree seed. Ready to go. All right? Here they are. Here's what promise number one that came to life was. A great rescue. This great exodus, this great saving event, a promised salvation, done. It happens. The next promise, second promise that came to life was the formation of a great people, a mighty nation, a promised people. Boom, done. It happens on the spot. Now where we are, where I'm talking about, we're at the third promise. And it's right at the entrance into a great land that was promised for a long time, a promised land. Now, as the people crossed the Jordan River, they stepped their first couple of steps into the promised land. Can you imagine? I'm sure there were quite a few goosebumps. And when they got into the land, there were two mountains in the land. As soon as they entered, crossed the land of the Jordan. They were told to divide the people into two groups and to go on, half the group go on one mountain, half go on the other. Six tribes on one, six tribes on the other. When they got in there, from one of the mountains, after everyone was divided up, One mountain was called Mount Gerizim. And this mountain literally came to life. Every man, woman, and child started shouting. I mean, can you imagine? We don't do that today. You know, go to a ball field and go to a ball. I mean, can you imagine thousands upon thousands of people on a mountain and every one of them shouting at the same time? Now, they weren't shouting hooray. And they weren't shouting, Moses is the man, or we will rock you, nothing like that. What they started shouting in unison, like a liturgy, like what we did in our worship service, were words of blessing. The sound of blessing ran through the promised land. It hit every nook and cranny, every valley, every stream. And as it moved, you were hearing sounds of life. You were hearing sounds of joy. You were hearing sounds of celebration. You were hearing sounds of bounty. You were hearing sounds of kingdom prosperity and kingdom peace. Blessing. Can you imagine? I mean, even the rocks were leaning into this. The trees started bending towards the blessing. And then as soon as the blessing was shouted and it faded away, another on the other mountain, Mount Ebal, Every man, woman, and child shouted in response. Except this time it wasn't blessing. This time, curses 
crashed through the valley and into the rocks and into the fields and shook the ground and shook every eardrum and shook every human heart. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the traveler, the fatherless, and the widow. Cursed be anyone who doesn't conform to the words of this law by doing them. Twelve curses in all, crashing all around. After each curse, the people on both mountains said, Amen. Twelve times, Amen. So be it. So be it. Now, fast forward about 1,400 years later. And there's this apostle named Paul. And he knows these curses. He could recite them in his sleep. And it's not just because he was a Pharisee and he was a, an accomplished student of the scriptures. And it's not because he read them in Deuteronomy. But he had this, this special relationship to the curses. He had a major reason why he had this intimate, intimate connection with them. You know what it was? Here it is. Paul knew the curses so well because he was punished five times by the religious leaders in his day for preaching a message of, a, of grace salvation, not achievement salvation. Five times he was punished for preaching this Galatian gospel that we're looking at instead of trying to be your own savior through your own record and your own performance. For preaching grace salvation, five times he received the punishment of the law, according to the synagogue, which was 40 lashes minus one. 40 was thought to kill you, 40 was thought to be law breaking. So when you're driven by the law, you keep the law. 39. To the T. Come back for the next stroke. Stop! 39. 195 times. He received the curse of the lash. Can you imagine what that man's back looked like? 195 permanent curse tattoos on his back for preaching grace salvation. Now, while these 40 lashes, minus one, are striking him, the synagogue manuals at the time, the structures, had this happen. You were called to recite the curses to the offender out loud for all to hear. So while the lashes are upon him, the law, the curses, what we just saw from those two mountains when the one mountain he ball gave those 12 curses, they're recited out loud to the offender. Now, something happens during this. There's such something that happens when these lashes are happening. Usually, probably the timing needed to be perfect. But around the, the 39th lash, Deuteronomy 27, 26 would be said when the last lash hit you. And it's quoted in verse 10. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. You ready? Here it is. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
What do you think, here's the question, what do you think Paul was thinking when the curse of the lash and the law bit into his flesh 195 times? What do you think was going through his mind and his heart? The closest we're going to get to knowing what that is, is the passage we're looking at today. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, Galatians 3, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14. 4, that's very important. Hope your translation has it. This is giving the basis, the reason for what was just said up top. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is living, your word is active. We thank you that your spirit that authored the word accompanies the word even now. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill us. To enable us to see wonders in your word. To open our hearts and open our minds to behold Christ in your word. And, oh Lord, would you do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's what's at stake in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. I want you to look at verse 10. Here's what's at stake. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This is a devastating verse. Look at it again. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, the ancient Greek world saw a curse as a way of death. Okay? So we're getting to kind of understand what this word means. And the Greeks believed that the spoken word had inherent power in it. Almost so it was very much like the magical world of Harry Potter, you know. Spelliamus! Abracadabra! Death. I mean, words carried power in them to the Greeks. So when you spoke a curse, you unleashed a dark power on a person. So if a person was cursed, they were exposed to this whole other world of dark and destructive power. Okay? This is why the Greeks went through extravagant strategies of trying to neutralize and dislodge curses that were brought on people. You look at any of the anthologies, the Greek gods, I mean, there's curse and counter curse. There's a counter curse for this curse. There's, this is also in the Greeks is where we got the evil eye notion. You know, we tell you, give them the evil eye. The evil eye was someone's giving you a curse. And that's what Paul alludes to in 3 chapter 1. Remember, we saw that. Paul's borrowing from that language, borrowing from that picture. Now, in the Old Testament, when you get to curse, it also means a way of death. But it means a little more focused clarity. A curse for the Old Testament person meant the opposite of justification and blessing. 
A curse for the Old Testament person meant cosmic condemnation. A cosmic casting out from God's presence. It was a cosmic rejection and forsaking by God. And when that happened, in the process, life unravels. Peace unravels. Happiness and blessing disintegrates and falls into pieces. And that's why the curse is like a a decreation. A curse is like creation in reverse. A curse is like going backwards into the mud and the flood and the darkness before creation. So a curse, whatever it touches, dehumanizes, disintegrates, and destroys. It's utterly devastating. So to understand how troubling and disturbing this is, we got to get in verse 10 that word under in mind. To get Paul's devastating comment here, the key to understanding in verse 10 is getting that word under. To be under something, to be under a curse is implying that a curse has real, very real power. You're under it. Now that word under is implying two things that we need to get in our heads. It's implying a legal reality and a personal reality. An objective reality and a subjective reality. For instance, you go into a court and the court turns to the criminal and he has a capital offense and he's given what? He's given the judgment of death. The death penalty. Now, it's devastating to the one receiving the death penalty. Legally, this person hears the sentence of a death penalty, and it's devastating. That's one aspect of being under the curse. The other aspect that Paul's talking about here, though, is when that person is actually handcuffed, taken out. And whether it's hung, lethal injection, gunshot in the olden days, dismembered, whatever it is, when that death penalty, when that curse is subjectively experienced, it's devastating. To be under the curse is to be under the reign and rule of devastation completely, legally, objectively, and relationally and personally wrecking havoc on you. That's what it means. Now, don't miss who's under the curse in verse 10. This is the point of the passage. I'm getting to the point. That's why we're paying attention to the text All who rely on the works of the law is under a curse. Anyone who tries to be their own savior is under the terror of cursing. That word all speaks for itself, doesn't it? Anyone who tries to be their own savior is under a curse. Now, those of you that are real sharp theologically, and there's maybe a couple of you in here, you're saying, wait a minute. I mean, I get the usual suspects. You know, the usual suspects that are under a curse are those that are self-consciously self-identifying themselves outside Christianity. I get those usual suspects being under their curse, but wait a minute, are you saying, are you saying that a Christian is under a curse? 
What's my answer? My first answer is this. I'm not saying it. Paul is. My second response is this. Paul is, isn't writing to those who are self-consciously selecting themselves outside of Christianity. Paul is writing to those who are self-consciously inside Christianity. Paul is addressing the church. So we got a dilemma. What does this mean? So here's our plan. I want you to listen again to the point of the text. And then I'm going to tell you the plan that we're going to look at. Here's the point. The point is this. Anyone trying to be their own savior is under the terror of a curse. Now there's a couple objections to that. So we're going to look at two objections. And then we're going to end, Lord willing, by taking a stab at what Paul was thinking when 195 cursing lashes of the law struck his flesh. Okay? So let's take objection number one. Here's objection number one. Many people have trouble with the divine curse. Is there anyone here that doesn't have trouble with the divine curse? No, many people have trouble with the divine curse. Most people have trouble with a very personal wrath, anger, judgment of God. But this is what I want us to think about. It's not those who are self-consciously outside of Christianity that should have the most trouble with a divine curse. The people that should have the most trouble with a divine curse are those who are self-consciously inside Christianity. Those who are in the church, those who believe in Jesus, should have the most trouble. Why? Because of verse 11. Because Christians get God's grace. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Grace alone accounts for anyone's full acceptance before God. That's it. How are you accepted before God? How does God have full acceptance with you? How does God make you his friend? How does God welcome you and take you in? Grace alone. Verse 11. That's what justification is, which we've talked about, and this book has talked about over and over again. That word justification keeps within it and packs within it the highest blessing you can have. And that is that God cosmically accepts you. He approves of you. And when you get that, it reaches the bottomless part of your soul. And it's the high point of all blessings that flow in chapter and verse 14. Christians should have the most trouble with the divine curse because they know that a divine curse is the exact opposite of justification and blessing. In other words, when a Christian really gets justification, the curse becomes more ugly and nasty and nauseating. The justified person has deep compassion for those who are under the curse. The justified person knows that the only difference between someone under justification or someone under a curse is grace alone. And so the justified person 
looks around and says, man, everything I have is a gift of grace. Everything. I haven't received anything because of my performance. In fact, if we'd start diving into my performance, what I really deserve is curse. To be dead right this moment. And so what happens is, is that the Christian, the justified person, sees curse and it really troubles them. And it really humbles them. Okay? Now, the second is this, but this is the one that really gets to it. I mean, that's just the beginning of answering the objection. The, the big objection is this. How can cursing exist with a loving God? Oh, that's the one. Isn't that the one that gets you? I mean, that's the one that gets me. How does that happen? How do you have a loving God and cursing existing at the same time? Here's the answer, and I'm not trying to play with the words, but, but hear me. Cursing exists with a loving God because God is a loving God. Here's what I mean. All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. If you're a parent and you come home to evil that is threatening to ravage your children... Are you indifferent? Are you tolerant? What does love look like towards your children in those kind of moments? Now, Becky Piper in her book, Hope Has Reason, she puts it this way. Now, that was really good. She said, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it, she says. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. In other words, God's curse is his settled opposition to evil and injustice and sin because it's destroying his creation. It's tearing to pieces the integrity of his creation and the wonder of his creation. So in other words, God's curse is, flows from his actual love for his creation. God's curse actually flows from the delight he has in his creation. In other words, he will stop the ravager in his home. That's curse. Now, second objection. Let's pick up the one we talked about earlier, about Christians being under the curse. We've got to figure that one out, don't we? Anybody still uncomfortable with that? I am. We've got to figure that one out. Now, 200 years ago, there was a spiritual giant named David Brainerd. Anybody heard of David Brainerd? A couple of y'all? Okay. 
He was a missionary to the Indians in the 1700s, and he had so impacted Jonathan Edwards that Jonathan Edwards took his journal, edited it, and put it together in a book called The Life of Brainerd. Now, this book has extraordinarily impacted spiritual giants that most of you know and have heard throughout the ages, and particularly in the United States and even around the world. For instance, some of you have heard of John Wesley, it greatly impacted John Wesley. Some of you have heard of Henry Martin, who was a calling to be a missionary in India. This work was instrumental in his moving out to India. How many of you have heard of William Carey, the father of modern-day missions? This work ignited William Carey. And we keep going. We could go down to Robert Morrison. Let's go over to Scotland. Robert Morrison, Robert McChain, greatly impacted by this work. Then we can go to Germany, Frederick Schwartz. Then we go to England, David Livingston. We come back to America with Jim Elliott in the 20th century. So this is a very, very significant work. Now this spiritual giant wrote what many of you probably can relate to. You ready? Was so overwhelmed with dejection that I knew not how to live. I longed for death exceedingly. My soul was sunk in deep waters. Listen to the words. Deep waters... And the floods were ready to drown me. I was so much oppressed that my soul was in a kind of horror. Who's to blame for that? Where do you point the finger at that kind of experience of cursing? God? Satan, the world, himself, chemical imbalances, or something else? Where do we point the finger? Here's the tension. For the Christian, objective divine cursing is gone. There's no more of it. So for those who are resting and trusting in Christ, the curse objectively is gone. It's eliminated. It's destroyed. The gospel truth that describes that's a word called propitiation, or in here in our text, it's called justification. It's the tail end of justification. And what that means is that the wrath and the anger and the judgment of God was justly poured out until it was, until it ran out. It was justly poured out at the cross until there was not another drop left in it. The curse expired at the cross. There's no more curse for the Christian. No more curse. And here's the tension. Subjectively experiencing that is a little more tricky and can vary and differ from Christian to Christian. So who's to blame? Where do you point the finger for the curse? For experiencing curse. The answer is found in verse 10. See if you can find it. Look at verse 10. Here's the answer. Who's to blame? Here's where you point the finger. Do you see it? The answer is works of the law. That's where you point the finger. 
Luther would say it this way. At the root of every single sin, at the root of every law-breaking, at the root of every disobedience and breaking of every commandment, at the root of every sin is idolatry. Okay? So you grab a sin, you pull it up, and in its roots you've got an idol. And this is what he means by an idol. And this is what the text means about an idol that Paul actually gets to in chapter 5. An idol is something or someone looking to something or someone other than God for what only God can provide. Okay? So here, you got it? You grab a sin, pull it up by the roots, and you got an idol. And then he says this. This is what Luther says. The superstructure, the skeletal structure of an idol is works of the law. The structure of an idol is trying to be your own savior. It's self-salvation. It's self-justification. It's works of the law. Man. So here's, here's what it looks like. Let's say you try to be your own savior. You're trying to find justification and life and blessing. You're trying to get to verse 16. Do you see verse 16? In Christ Jesus, the blessings of it. You want the blessings of Abraham that they might come to you. You want to receive the promised life of the Spirit. You want justification and life. The highest blessings you can have. And you want to avoid cursing. So you try to be your own savior. And let's say, let's, let's pick one. Let's say the way you try to get these things, avoid this, get this, is by being your own savior through your personal comfort. So let's tackle that one. We've done, I think we've done performance pretty good. Let's tackle personal comfort. All right? If, if you're trying to find life in personal comfort, trying to avoid cursing in personal comfort, here's the things you'll deeply hope in. Here's some things that you'll deeply trust in. You'll trust in your personal privacy. You'll trust in personal freedom and independence. You'll trust in experiences, comforting and pleasurable experiences. You'll trust in a stress-free life. Those are the kind of things that will rise in ascendancy to you. These are the kinds of things that will make your life have meaning and will give you a sense of worth and value, all right? Now, because this personal comfort is a strategy of self-salvation, it has within it, inherently within it, a works of a law structure. Here's what I mean. If you keep the works, the law of personal independence and freedom, if you keep the works of the law of personal experiences and personal comfort, and you may define it in all kinds of ways, that might be a boat to you, that might mean you've got to have a real restful, relaxation holiday weekend this weekend. Whatever it is, if you keep the standards, the works, the laws of your desire for personal comfort, then you're okay. But if you don't keep them, this idol curses you in your soul. You can't shake the deep sense of utter failure and loss that you will experience when you don't meet the standards. An emotional death will happen in your soul. Do you see this? Okay. Now this can go for, we can, we can apply it to being a good Christian. If you don't meet those standards of being a good Christian, 
that idol curses you in your soul. You can apply it to being a great musician and having success as an athlete or having success as a professor or having your reputation and your status as a, as a good moral person or as a leader in the church or as a good communicator or as a talented and gifted profession and go on and on and on. If you don't keep your works of the law in that idol, it curses you in your soul. Got it? All right, now here's the good news. You ready? The good news is verse 11 follows verse 10. This is great news. What this is, for those of you, for those of us who experience cursing, and everyone does, some of you are more aware of it than others. When you experience cursing as a Christian, it is God's smoke alarm. It is God's alarm to say you're trusting and hoping in a false savior. Because in verse 11, you get a true savior and a true savior doesn't curse you. A true savior only justifies you and welcomes you and fully accepts you and takes you in and treats you as a righteous person and crowns you and kisses you and can't wait to see you and rejoices over you. And so if you're experiencing cursing, it's a warning sign to flee to the safety of a true Savior who doesn't do that. Okay? So let's look at, let's look at it this way. Look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that notice where the blessings come from, notice where life is found, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings that were given to Abraham, those were the promises that were given way, way back that started being acted upon in those two mountains, but really are finally acted upon in the cross. The blessings that echoed after sounded forth from Mount Gerizim and swept the whole land are actually heard and actually felt and leaned into at the cross. So what did Paul think when he was being lashed? Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree is a quote from Deuteronomy 21:23. Do you see that? Look in your text. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's in verse 13. That's taken from Deuteronomy. Now, the Old Testament law required when there was a capital offense, you got to kill the person. And then when you kill the person, you got to string him up and hang him on a tree. Because when he's hung on a tree, this is now a public shame for all to see of the heinousness, of the dehumanizingness, of the falling to pieces, the decreatedness of what this person had done. This person decreated, dehumanized. He's hung up on a tree for all to see. That's what that is. Okay? Cursed. Now, hoisting the body up on the tree was publicly stating that this person is under the curse of God. Rejected and forsaken by God. And thus unleashing and unraveling everything that's good, everything that's blessings, everything that has life in it, done. Mud, flood, darkness fills the void, okay? 
Now here's the catch though. When they were hung on the tree, they had to be taken down by the end of the day. This is why, remember when Joshua defeated these kings, and they were uh, Canaanite kings at Makkedah, he had those five kings hung on five separate trees, and then at sunset they took them down. That's why when the Philistines defeated Saul and his seven sons and defaced and disgraced the bodies by hanging them naked in a town, there were some brave Israelites that snuck in there at night and took the bodies down before sunset. And that's why there was another king, the true king, who watched this happen, that applauded the heroic efforts of these, of these uh, Israelite brave men. And this is why the religious leaders went to Pilate at the end of the day and said, you've got to take Jesus' body down. It cannot hang overnight. Now, don't pass this up. You can zealously keep the law and commit the greatest sin that's ever been committed. Killing God. All at the same time. Now, what was Paul thinking when those 195 lashes are striking his flesh? It's a stab, or it's an inference. Taken from verse 13 and 14, really verse 13, you know what I think he was thinking? Jesus is my curse. Jesus was publicly hung on a tree so I wouldn't be. Jesus was forsaken by God in my place. Jesus was banished and kicked out of the garden in my place. Jesus took the full proportioned weight of the condemnation, wrath, and anger of God for my sin in my place. Jesus is my curse. No curse can touch me now. So go ahead and give me 40. You tired? I'm not tired. Give me another one. You can't curse me. Because Jesus is my curse. Do you see what happens here? What happens is, is he's probably thinking, look, I'm justified Jesus. I don't need the religious leaders to say I'm okay. I don't need them to approve me. I have Jesus' approval. I have full acceptance. I am righteous. I have that with God. Their curse can't condemn me at my very core anymore. So as each lash strikes him, it doesn't strike him to the core of his very being. It hurts. It's disturbing. But it, it doesn't take the life from him. My righteousness is Jesus. I think he was thinking, look, I have everything. I have nothing to lose. The righteous by faith shall live. 
So anyone trying to be their own savior is under the terror of the curse. Anyone. Those that wake up to it, it's actually a blessing. In this life, it's a blessing because it's a disturber. It's the great disturber of life that moves us to say, I've got to get to verse 11. It's a great disturber because it gets your attention and it makes you wake up and say, listen, I must be trusting in another functional false savior. I need to get into verse 11. The only way out, the only rescue is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You trust in the cross and curse as far as it's found is pushed away from you. Amen.